This episode of the King's Hall is brought to you by Ideal Poultry and our supporters at Patreon.com. One of the fundamental qualifications given for church leadership in the New Testament is that we must have men who know what it means to be a father. If we continue to ignore the obvious, it gets pretty complicated because we don't understand how imitation governs the world. We have neglected one of the fundamental realities that we are supposed to imitate. As a result, everything downstream from that goes to pieces also. Consider Paul's words to Timothy. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5. Within the church, spiritual leaders are fathers to their congregations. One of the central qualifications for a father in a congregation is that he is able to demonstrate for the people what a godly, effective father can do in the home. Instead of this, we have decided to substitute three years of graduate study. The result we have gotten should not have been a surprise to us. Douglas Wilson from Father Hunger. The King's Hall podcast exists to make self-ruled men who rule well and win the world. Well, welcome, gentlemen, to another episode of the King's Hall podcast. I am excited to be with you. Uh, say hello to our listeners. First of all, I want to start with the man, the myth, the legend. You can't be talking about me. Brian Sobey. Oh, I thought you were going to say Dan Burkholder. And the, he was making direct eye contact with me. I thought he was going to do the whole Dan Burkholder. Deep <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Eric. It's, it's good to be here. Yes. And by the way, Brian, I feel like because of your daughter eating beets, mm -hmm. yeah. that we should probably dedicate this episode to Winifred. Everything I do is dedicated to Winifred, but I agree <laughs> yes. that this specifically. Um, Eric is the number two fan of my little Winifred. Big time. Every time my wife puts up an Instagram reel just... of her, I send it to him and I say to Winnie's number two fan. I'm the number one fan, but you know. I mean, speaking of fatherhood, yeah. this is why fatherhood is so important. Was, Dan, it's those cute little faces. You've got a cute little guy. You've got Cal. Yeah, and yep. he is. Well, and I got Hanky. Hanky's little. He's uh, he's only eleven months. He's going to be a year soon. Your yeah. little guys, future kings. Oh, what a hey, good name. You know, uh, I, the reason I bring up Hank instead of Cal. Cal's my two-year-old, and he is a tornado of terror. Yeah, yeah, right. And and little Hank, he's he's not yet. So yeah, I do have some cute ones, but they're not little girls. They don't want snuggles. They want to pull my beard out <laughs> by the they, roots. They they are. Dan, future kings, and that means yeah. sometimes <laughs> that they are full of lots of energy. Yeah, and pain. Yes. And pain. Yes. So, yes. gentlemen, we are moving into really part two of what we were doing in the last episode, which is answering the question, what are fathers for? But, Brian, before we do that, we have some special, exciting, earth-shattering. What, what are some more superlatives that we could throw behind yeah. this from New Christendom Press? I mean, huge. I always call it massive. Sometimes they say huge. Not a bad one. Glorious. Glorious. Massive. Please don't. Please don't. All right. I knew it. <laughs> let's get let's get to it before people are like, I'm out of the King's Hall. What's our announcement? Our announcement, Brian, is that there is a conference coming. Mm. And in the words of Ricky Bobby. If you ain't first, you're last. <laughs> I don't know how that applies. To is that this. are you saying like to sign up? <laughs> I don't really it's, know. It's actually not true. That has been on my soundboard for a long time. We don't have like seating. You've been waiting. And it needed using. Okay. Every time we say the word conference, I want you guys to know that it's spelled with 
two ends in the f- not That's not right. it, it was already spelled two ends. Ours is spelled three. Conference. <laughs> That's right. Uh, the three end conference. So uh, in June, in Ogden, Utah, mm. at our church. Yes, there is going to be a conference. Mm. I believe it is titled Brian. You are the plan. You are the plan. That is our conference title because you are the plan. <laughs> you are the plan. So Dan and Brian and myself, we will be there. We're inviting everybody to mm. come to that as well. And uh, I think it's going to be a good time, Brian. Yeah, it's going to be a great time. There's a link in the description of this episode that you can go and click on that will take you to all the details for the conference. Go sign up. Carve it out of your calendars June 8th through the 10th, year of our Lord, 2023. And uh, it's not only are we going to have some great content with two ends, but we're going to have some great time of networking, friendship, getting together. We're going to put on... Uh, it's going to be like a party vibe, so that's not even the right word. <laughs> party vibe. Party vibe. <laughs> like a serious party, though. You know, like for adults. It's going to be great. Not like birthday hats or, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, just be aware that seating is extremely limited yes. because we have a small church, and so there's not a lot of seats available. So yeah. the sooner that you uh, buy your tickets, yes, I mean, the better. Once they're gone, they're gone. We they're can't. Gone. I mean, you can't take a historic church, knock the walls down, add more seats. It's just not going to happen. So get your slot as quickly as you can. Carve it out on your calendars. Buy your ticket. We're going to be doing some psalm singing. We're going to be doing some teaching that we hope will be super helpful and practical. Theology with calluses, like everything else we try to put out here at New Christendom Press, and all kinds of other surprises. So be there. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, Brian, one, one final question about the conference with two ends. Yeah. Will there or will there not be sea shanties? I am on record right now, Eric, that there will be sea shantying. There There will will be be. psalm singing more importantly, but everywhere I go, people say, but but we're going to do the sea shanty right. And I'm like, yes, we're going to do the sea shanty. But yes, we're going to do the sea shanty. It's going to be glorious. Glorious. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Well, gentlemen, we are going to move into the episode now. We are talking, Dan, about what fathers are for. And you read the quote from Doug Wilson very well, I might add. Oh, thank you. But one thing Doug pointed out, and we were talking about this in the last episode, is really as we move to the foundations of things and the foundations of new Christendom, we really are returning to the obvious. And so sometimes the obvious can be the thing that is easiest to overlook. And so we're coming now to the first point, which is ruling your own household well. Um, So we asked the question, what are fathers for? Fathers are supposed to rule their households well, and this will also play into the church. But I just want to ask you, starting with you, Dan, why is it so important that fathers be competent at ruling a household for the sake of new Christendom? And what what does that even mean, ruling a household well? In regards to to pastors in the church, like the quote? Yeah. 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 Well, Uh, yeah, and I think, too, the other connection point here is it is pastors in the church— but pastors in the church are fundamentally qualified fathers. Yeah, they must be fathers first. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, qualified fathers. Yeah, I mean, it's it, the quote from from Father Hunger um, that I read in the beginning is so unbelievably obvious. That, yeah, and it's missed completely by so many people. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, if just think about the way that search committees find pastors for their church. I mean, it is it is fundamentally a resume sort of yep. qualification search. Yep. Just like you would find an engineer. We're looking for a mechanical engineer. What yep. school did they go to? 
What was their GPA? Where did they intern? Give me some what sample experience sermons. you had. It doesn't seem like Paul is as concerned about your seminary degree as how you manage your children. Yeah. Like he seems far more concerned about that. And yep. so, I mean, this is like this, this should be the foundation level of finding an elder it is yep. what, how does he run his house? That I mean, if you look at the qualifications for elder, as you go, as you go through the, the qualification list, most of them have to do with how does he manage his house? How does he manage his house? So I know one of the things that we've done here at, at Refuge Church is that people often look at our, our elder, elder team and go like, well, what seminaries did you go to? You know, um, what all degrees do you have? Yeah, all of that. And, um, and universally, what you'll find is we're like, yeah, I, I mean, that's great and all. Uh, but how do they run their household? Right. Mm-hmm. What does their wife think about their husband? Yeah, you know, what are the children? How do they act? Do they respect their father? That's one of the questions I was going to ask. And, and Brian, I, I think this is something you guys have covered a lot in Brighthearth. But what would be like the fruit of a well-run household? What would the, you know, maybe it's what you see in the wife. But what do you typically see if you, you see a guy and you say, okay, his household's run well. What does that actually look like? Yeah, when you're when you're looking at a household where the father is ruling well. Yeah. You can tell that everybody know. First of all, everybody knows what they're what they're for and what they're supposed to be doing. So the the wife who is the oiko despot, she's you know the manager of the house. She knows what she's supposed to be doing. She has a clear mission. She knows what to put her energy into. She knows what not to. So that eliminates the. And I'm not saying that there's never a temptation to this, but anxiety. When you see a lot of anxiety in a wife, uncertainty, anxiety, she's not safe. She doesn't feel like she has a covering. She doesn't feel like a good leader backstops. So a good leader is like, I have your back. If there's a problem, it's my problem kind of thing. So you see a wife who knows what she's for, what she's supposed to be doing. You see kids who know their marching orders, who are disciplined well and consistently. You see the basics happening like children are being discipled from their education through their spiritual formation through their mere discipline and you know spankings for what they need spanking for you're just seeing those normal things happen and the result is and it sounds like i described something that has a lot of rigidity to it which is true but the result is actually that there's a sense of freedom and well, joy yeah it's the same way that a budget is rigid yeah you know people people that don't budget they're often like, oh, You're you want me joyful. to make a budget? That sounds horrible. But really what a budget does is says, no, actually, you can spend up to this much yeah. money on this thing. Like, you have freedom to this point. And so it's the same thing with a family. Yeah. When you introduce discipline and and you know where you stand, that's, that's the other thing. Like, when you work at a company where you have a bad boss mm-hmm. or a bad manager, meaning – the only time you ever get feedback on like what do, what do these people think about me? What do my what does my boss think about me? You never know where you stand until yep. your yearly review, and then you're like, you know, getting feedback from uh, allegedly an entire year's worth of work, and they're like, oh yeah, you're fine, and you go into it thinking I'm probably going to be fired at this. Thing. Yeah, you don't know where you stand. You, don't, you just never know where you stand. Be anxious because you don't know what you're being measured against. And so, yeah, some of the fruits of a good household is that you do have rigidity in the right areas yep. and you also know your standing. So yeah, like we talked about in the last episode as well, like children know that their father takes pleasure in them. Yeah, You know, your wife knows that um, she's going to be cared for mm-hmm. and protected and provided for. So some of those are some of the fruits. Yeah. Yeah. One, one of the other questions I have is, okay, but then do you see that 
in most of the evangelical church in America. I, I would tend to say I see a lot of passive men um, who aren't used to taking a leadership role on those things. Mm-hmm. You guys agree, disagree, and then if if you do agree, what do you say to that guy? You know, what what do you say to him that you need to do so that you get yourself in the position to actually rule well? What do you say to the passive guy? So first question was, do you think there are a lot of passive men in the church? And second, what do you do about it? Yeah, you, you definitely have a lot of passivity in the church, and I think we have a lot of mechanisms in place that actually incentivize passivity or incentivize um, bringing and raising up leaders, particularly in the church, who are actually not good models of strong fathers, but they're actually good, strong models of simps, mm. of men who are good at pleasing, controlling women. Because a lot of churches are run by controlling women. Well, it's mostly, depending on where you go, I mean, up to 70% of the congregation will be women. Yeah. And then you take the the most um, leadership-oriented 5% of that 70%, and you put them in charge of all of the bureaucratic uh, machinery of the church, all the committees, and et cetera. And you're going to incentivize um, passivity in, to the point where I remember I was actually, I think, in junior high, and I was on a search committee for my church for a youth pastor. They wanted some representation on the search committee from youth. It was, I don't you know, I'm, I'm not saying it's a good idea. <laughs> Children and women will rule over you. Yes, that was our committee. And I, I just recall going through and interviewing, like being in, involved in these interviews. I didn't really say much, but I was there for most of them. And it was really interesting to think back now and, re- and, and and now note that we'd asked very little about children, marriage. It was like sample sermons, tell us about youth camps you've run. And, and like to be <laughs> the whole like dedicated youth pastor putting on a, a separate youth worship thing, which is what that was, is a bad idea in general. But even if it had just been a general pastoral search, the things that we were incentivizing or that we were selecting for as a model of a man— the pastor's a model of a man, was they were not ideal. It wasn't strong fatherhood. wasn't strong leadership. It was essentially, I think this happens a lot, a man who is really good at presenting an image and not making waves with the female leadership of the bureaucracy. Well, it's, it's weird because a lot of pastors, in my experience, especially at a lot of the bigger churches, they end up kind of being like NFL coaches. And And what I mean by that is not all NFL coaches are this way. But those guys work 100 hours a week. They're typically, if you last, you're really good at your job. But then you look at their family lives and it's just a minefield. Because you can't, honestly, if you're working 100 hours a week over the years, you're not going to be able to pour into your family. And so a lot of times it's like, well, we've inverted this process of, okay, Paul said if you rule well in your house, you're qualified to be a pastor. That's really not what we built the church on. So then it's not surprising that, okay, the church is not full of fathers. Yeah. It's full of feminists of both sexes, basically. Yeah, yeah. which is technically possible. Feminist Men are supposed to be feminists, too. Yeah. Apparently. Yeah, so I, I, the other question I want to ask here is uh, about the sort of the historical things that are going on in the church. I mean, if you read somebody like Calvin, you look at Geneva, even early U.S. in the 1800s, you still see a lot of patriarchy. Um, you still see a lot of father-led families and churches. What do you, what do you think historically has happened that brought us 
to this point where we're, you know, female-dominated churches and lack of understanding or appreciation for this qualification of household rule. Yeah, I mean, I think we talked about it a lot in season one. So if you haven't listened to all, like, 100 episodes from that first season, you know, go back and listen to that. But if you just look at the background expectations of the culture uh, since the 1960s onward, Mm -hmm. the expectation is not that men would go and provide for their homes, take care of their wives and children, that they would stay married, you know, that uh, there was no such thing as no-fault divorce, you know, things of that nature. Uh, to since the 1960s, looking forward, you have this expectation that women need to go out and work. They need to provide. They need to produce. That uh, the, you know, the media portrays men uh, with uh, in story, you know, so like on television, in books and things like that, portrays men as uh, as kind of dopes, you know, and, and they're not competent. So you think they, the church was just following the culture then? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Well, yeah, I just mean like the background culture, yeah. not even not yeah, even yeah. the church itself. It's just like the expectation is that women are competent, men are idiots, and that you know, you can you're free to come and go as you please as far as divorce. I mean, even even thinking uh about an, an experience I had when my parents uh when I was a child went to a a church they had they had left the pastor um I guess he had been uh, committing adultery, left his wife, divorced her, and they still retained him as a pastor. What? Yes. They still retained him as a pastor. I mean, that's just like, and this is at a church, right? So just the background culture, the expectation is is just so low for for men and fathers. In fact, it's like anytime you you guys post on Twitter— about patriarchy, you're inevitably going to have some sort of feminist background shrieking, uh, telling you that you're being a bigot and you're being oppressive. And, and a lot of times it's you're the, being a the, sexist. It's the men, it's the white it's, knights. Right, right, exactly. And, and that's just the background culture. So the expectation is for men to not be fathers, yeah. to not be men. Well, I think the next point, Dan, is is very closely related to this. So lack of fatherhood in the church, but Specifically, a lack of sexually masculine fathers in the church. So I think one of the things that fathers are supposed to provide is uh, masculinity sexually, um, that they're portraying what it means to be a man over against our culture, which is, again, egalitarian, feminist. One of the things that I was looking at social media this week was I actually didn't understand the photo at first. It was a picture of Dwayne Wade with, I thought, his daughter— and um, his Gabrielle Union or something like this, his feminazi crazy wife. I think they're married. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, I said, well, what's so weird about this? Well, I started reading the backstory, and his daughter is actually called Zaya now and is a 15-year-old boy who is pretending to be a woman, in the culture speak, trans. And um, so they were, like, going to prom or something, and... D. Wade is up here celebrating in the photo on social media about Zaya, who is also apparently an advocate for the LGBTQRSTUV plus everything else movement. So, Brian, this was kind of a, a just kind of a poignant example, I thought, in my mind, of the opposite of setting a masculine tone as a father 
in your home and your culture actually celebrating the exact opposite, which maybe highlights why it's so needed. So I guess just if you were to look at that situation, look at our culture, why do we need sexually masculine fathers? Well, when you have a doctrine that's under particular attack in the culture, uh, for right now we're talking about doctrine of anthropology, sex, human sexuality, what is it, what is it for, is it fluid, is it culturally defined, is it something that you can change at will, are you self-determinative there? You're, you're looking at a place where the church needs to particularly stand strong, where they need to present a strong front, build high walls, they need to be very clear, emphatically clear. And one of the most important ways that you can be emphatically clear on something, one of the ways you have to be emphatically clear on something doctrinally is by demonstrating that doctrine incarnationally, putting flesh to it, demonstrating it in households and in church leaders. And this is one of the reasons that things like the Latin Rite celibacy in the Catholic Church that's been going on since the Middle Ages, not all priests in the Catholic Church are, are celibate, but uh, there are some Eastern Rite exemptions and things like that. But in general, what that kind of thinking has established is that uh, celibacy in a man is the ideal, and that anybody who falls short of that is, you know, they're not quite righteous enough. And and that kind of thinking has led to the fruit in the church where we're not presenting a strong and fleshed picture in our be-like-this-man ideal in the church of sexually masculine, being a husband and a father, and that kind of thing. So when you have the combination of a, of a an apostate culture that has completely lost its mind. What you just described is, it, it would be, abs- I mean, you, you laugh, it, it's silly. It's act- when, you, when you look at this kind of stuff, it's so silly that it would just be a joke if it wasn't utterly destroying thousands upon thousands of image bearers of God and bringing absolute hell and misery into families. So the church... Men in particular have to lead the charge in demonstrating sexually masculine ideals, and that means self-controlled, not pornified, not effeminate, not falling into the ditch of domination or abdication, but presenting a strong front, partly because that's actually, I think, actually going to be one of our strongest apologetics over time, is that as the culture reaps the whirlwind— They've, you know, they've, they're, they're sowing to the wind. They're going to reap the whirlwind. What's going to be there for them to look to and say, is there a different way? It should be Christian men, Christian households, Christian communities, Christian churches. What, yeah. do, you, what, do, you, what do you mean when you say, like, they should look that way? What do, you, do you mean like they actually should, by appearance, look a certain way? Like, is the, that what you're oh, saying? godly men? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You should, I mean, and not in the... Um, every every single man should, you know, fit some exact stamp of cultural ideal of of beard and jacked the the level of jackedness, you know, <laughs> you know. But men should look like men. Men should dress like men. Women should dress like women. Fathers should be. You should look at a man and be able to say, "Wow, he he's not fluid between the two. And right now, some of the some of the ways that the Overton window gets pushed in towards effeminacy and gender fluidity is actually in that realm where we're like, oh, let's, let's normalize fat 
fat guys who it's hard to tell whether they're, you know, fat everybody. Hard to tell whether they're even a man or a woman. Let's normalize men like wearing the most like high heels. And you guys watched the Great British Baking Show? I did. Ever? Before, I know what it is. I've yeah. seen it. One of the one of the the comedians that hosts it. I can't remember. Noel, I think is his name. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah. The guy who Noel. thinks he's a vampire. Yeah, yeah. So he's yeah. actually really funny. He's heterosexual, married, and has at least one child. Okay, the man wears like leggings and high heels. What? And he dresses kind of like a vampire. All right. So <laughs> you you look you at that. Ugly. I mean, yeah. You look at him, you'd be like, that's that's what you're saying. Dress dress actually says things. And um, yeah, so part of pushing back against this and pre- preventing a strong incarnational front is by dressing like a man, looking like a man. Well, I think that's even something that, that we try to model in the church. I, and I was thinking about it because of my boys, but it, it plays into all the men in the church, right? When you're pastoring on Sunday, um, our elders, our pastors, are they're dressed like men, right? They have usually sports coats, a tie. Yeah. They present themselves very well. And because of that, all the young men are like, Sunday's the day where you put your best on. And they keep asking for, like, a blazer for Christmas. Yeah. Kind of stuff. Like, I knew we were winning when my oldest was like, hey, Dad, can I have some tie clips and new ties for Christmas? I was like, yes, you can. But that's because you have people like Headmaster Love and Mm -hmm. ourselves, you know, modeling that for the men. I think it's also interesting. Our culture will say these uh, sexual identity markers don't matter, and there's no objective standard and then, like, when a woman goes, quote-unquote, trans, the first thing she does is shaves her head and gets baggy man clothes. She's wearing Carhartts now. And she yeah. turns into a lumberjack dyke. It's, so uh, it's, I'm, gender, like, sex isn't a binary, and yet if I'm going to become a man, I have to take testosterone, get a low voice, cut my breasts off, and look like a, which is it? Yeah, they clearly know there's a standard. Which is <laughs> So, again, I, I think a lot of it, too, um, you know, by all means, listen to the Hard Men podcast. We talk a lot about this stuff. But even simple things like men being competent at manly skills, it could be chopping wood, it could be repairing a car. Those are competencies. Uh, John Moody and I recently were talking about this on the podcast, but he said that somebody who chops wood, their testosterone in the hour after chopping wood goes up by 300 points. What? So when you when you see a lumberjack man who's brawny and has a beard and you think people joke, they're like, oh, so you're saying we should all... I'll be lumberjacks. And you're like, well, yeah, kind of. I mean, you should you, <laughs> yeah. you should do some manly skills at the very least because those things actually do matter. Yeah. Um, so I think for pastors in general, setting the tone for your people as fathers who rule well, you don't want to be that guy who has soft hands, doesn't know how to put in a day's hard work. Uh, you want to be somebody who's modeling for your people. I can put in that dogged, dogged work. Yeah. I can be physically strong. I'm not a fat slob. You know, et cetera. Yeah, the number of fat pastors who are actually obese is actually a, that's one of the evidences that we don't understand this doctrine. That's not sexually masculine. No, it's not. And you're presenting uh, to the congregation uh, a picture of this person you're supposed to imitate. Uh, that is, and I'm not saying there are going to be sins and areas of temptation and struggle for any given person. So maybe that is an area where you were dealt a bad hand, and that genuinely happens. If, you're, if your mom and dad didn't teach you how to eat or self-control and, like, you were just given the, the stuff from the middle of the supermarket aisles that will last forever if you leave it out in the—it in the, just doesn't rot because it's made of, like, 
80% GMO plastic or whatever, you know, it's like, yeah, that's, that's a, a problem to overcome. I'm yeah. not saying if a pastor doesn't have an eight pack, they're disqualified, but you, you have to start back. weighing it. I mean, let's say I'm out. <laughs> I'm out. I'm sorry, Eric. I'm out. I'm also out. Yeah. We're all out actually. Well, Dan, I'm in Dan. Sh- proof right now. I have a six Show pack. me your body, Dan, <laughs> or it is wow. out. Wow. Ray is going to cut. Ray no, is going to cut that I, out. I do know. Should I call you Mister? Ray is going to make that a soundboard. He's, he's not cutting it out. No, he's going to make. You, say, you know, he's going to no, make it soundboard. If we clip. say cut I, it I out, Ray's like, yeah, no, yeah, leave I, that yeah. in. Show me your body, Dan. Your body, Dan. Show me your body, Dan. I cut it out and make it a, a clip and give it to Eric. <laughs> That's what it means to Ray. What it is interesting though, Brian, because I, I was thinking of a one of the quotes from Doug Wilson, which is really helpful. He says this: "Men don't carry things because they happen to have broad shoulders. They have broad shoulders because God created them to carry things." So one of the things we're not advocating is that you should have muscles and be strong and use your strength so that you can take really crazy selfies, gym selfies, with your shirt off. That is gay. Please stop. Please stop. So what we are saying, though, is that masculinity, God made you a certain way physically so that you can gladly assume responsibility because this is what it means to be a man. The other thing I would say is uh, in the category of sexual masculinity, why a father needs to be that, you also need to show your people what it means to be a sexually fruitful, potent guy. So this seems, again, so obvious, Dan, but like, if, if you're having children, raising them well, being sexually fruitful, the fruit is obvious. Well, that is going to be something that shapes your people as well. So, again, why, why, why would that aspect of fatherhood, i.e. raising children, showing what sexuality is actually for, and I'm talking about marriage bed sexuality now, why is that important in leading a people? Well, I mean, you, you don't even have to look out into the scriptures. You could just look at humanity itself within the scope of even pagan religions and how important virility and being able to um, have children is. I mean, it's massively important throughout uh, all of humanity. It's, it's something that's ingrained in our humanity from the first covenant made with Adam, with, with, uh, with our father Adam, uh, to be fruitful and to multiply because it is one of the greatest and most potent things uh, for good or for ill, yeah. that a man can do is to create eternal creatures, creatures that will live forever, that are image bearers. They're created in the image of God, and you had some part in making them. And uh, as the scripture says, they're like arrows in the hands of a warrior, mm. you know? And and so that means it's a dangerous thing to have children, and it's a very potent thing to have children. And it's the ultimate picture of habit, of virility and, and of masculine strength. Yeah, and one of the reasons I bring it up is because, especially in manosphere spaces, Brian, you're familiar with a lot of this uh, from having gone to the conferences, hanging out with some of those guys. But one of the problems becomes they'll talk about things like men on a mission. Okay, sure. But scripturally, the mission is connected directly to fruitfulness. But a lot of these guys, if they do have fruitfulness— it's like Andrew Tate weirdness. I'm going to impregnate like 30 different. It's bizarre. Yeah. Or they just say we're not having children. Yeah. Whatever. So from your take pastorally, why is the sexually fruitful part 
so important when you're defining sexual maleness? Well, when you, whenever you have sin get into a system in any serious way, and we have an absolute flood of sexual immorality in our cultural system right now, yeah. as it, again, apostatizes from the Christian faith, you're going to have reaction, counter-reaction, all flesh. Yeah. All of it's yeah, the yeah. flesh. You're going to have uh, unhinged, total sexual license sexual revolution nonsense, complete flood of pornography, you're going to have that. And then all the way on the other side of the flesh, you're going to have no fap, you're going to have celibacy, you're going to have stoicism. Um, and part part of what you see developing there in the, in the manosphere is somewhat related to the, the legal challenges as well, to fathers right now, to having children and being married. One of the ways that the non-Christian pagan manosphere has responded is by saying things like, protect yourself by only having children with surrogates. Literally, this is advice you'll That's hear right how now you in the manosphere. Protect Even if you get married, only have children with surrogates really? so that they don't have legal right to your children in the same way. This is the Andrew Tate nonsense where you have – if you want to be a father, go impregnate six women in the Philippines. What, I mean that's literally what Andrew Tate said at one point from a clip I saw on Twitter. I don't listen to Andrew Tate, so whatever. But – you're going to have reaction, counter-reaction. And so what the church is always aiming to do is to not just believe true things, but again, enflesh them to demonstrate sexual, uh, sexual wisdom in an age of sexual folly. And that is going to require uh, men to absolutely take the charge and lead in sexual purity, sexual continence, and fruitful sexuality. So men who are looking at pornography, and that's a significant number of our listeners, for sure. That needs to be first priority in your life for repentance. And I'm, I'm not going to hit you over the head right now. I'm going to say you can do it. Like, you can. You have the Holy Spirit in you. You have brothers who will help you. You need to repent of that today. You need to cut off the hand. Get rid of it today. Because if you're not, then in that, you're, you're being captured by the system and playing for the other team. You're, you're, you're being poisoned by the spirit of the age, and you're having your strength sapped away from you. You're giving your strength to women. You're not using your strength for the sake of the woman and the child. And the, you, you see what I'm saying? It's like we have to hold here or we won't hold anywhere. Yeah, and I think that's a huge part for households. We were talking about fathers' households earlier, but also the household of the church, right? One of the things I've repeatedly said, you have to get your own household in order first. And so it's it's the very, like, unattractive work of if you have a porn problem, put that to death. Um, for some people, it may be yeah, having long conversations with your spouse if they don't want to have children. I, I don't know yeah. how, you, you know, a lot of people end up in that situation. Maybe they weren't Christians. You become a Christian. You're struggling with that issue. But, like, sexual fruitfulness, this is a get-your-house-in-order issue. Yeah, we've, we've, been, we've been cultivated. We've been discipled culturally by this apostate culture to separate— sex from covenant on the one side and from fruitfulness on the other. So we have, you know, covenantless sex in pornography, fornication, premarital sex, yeah. promiscuity. We have uh, a, a, a flood of everything is sexual. Everybody's bodies are out. There's complete immodesty. Everything is sex all the time, sex 24-7. And then you also are able to technologically divorce sexual fruitfulness from the act of sex itself with hormonal birth control and all kinds of other like transhumanist um, tech technological advances that are actually generally evil when you, and the church has been pretty much unified on this question. 
until, again, 10 minutes ago, historically speaking. And, and so when you do that, when you have these two disconnects, it is an act of radical uh, radical obedience to God. It's, it, it looks radical against the backdrop of just normal covenant, sexual fruitfulness, having children, being faithful to your wife, raising your children. Those normal things all of a sudden become... Teaching your daughters how to put clothes on. I mean, right now, there are guys on Twitter who are not even Christians who are selling courses on Gumroad trying to help men just do what I described. Find a good woman, marry or have children, like live this trad life. And they're doing it because a lot of them are just making money off of it. But that tells you, like those normal things, just being a human being is now you can monetize, like you can actually sell courses on that. It'd be like if you do had they, a culture where you had to sell make, course on how to eat. Do they make money on that? Oh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. They do. They, they do. do. Yeah, absolutely. New venture from New Chris yeah, and Impress, how to be a human. Yeah, how to be a human being. <laughs> and in a sense, that's that's the project of the church all the time is saying, here's the true man, here's Christ. By union with him, become the true become true man. That that That's huge. I mean, that's huge. But it's it's cr- you can tell how crazy our culture is by what you can currently sell a course teaching people to do. <laughs> it's like that's a really good point. Stuff that you could just your dad who your dad taught you how to do this stuff and it was like not something you ever like Amish kids for the most part aren't thinking about how to be a husband and a father. Generally, I mean I I highly doubt they have well, I know they're not listening to podcasts. Enough. I was about to say, I highly doubt they're listening to podcasts yeah. about how Amish to be. listeners out there. Please send us a message yeah. if you're confused on what a human is. Yeah, they're like, and, and even for all, I'm sure the Amish have their issues, but you know, when you look at like that frozen in time snapshot of pre sexual apostate culture just, versus stuff that now is a course on Gumroad, yeah, where there's a guru who's like, you know what I'm going to teach you how to do. I'm going to teach you how to marry a woman and have children with her. <laughs> and the Amish are like, <laughs> these people are Am idiots. I a joke to you? These people <laughs> are stupid. To you. Gentlemen, I think we all agree that there are few foods in the world as nutritious and delicious as some good eggs. You know, Brian, that's right. That's why I slunk at least 18 raw eggs a day. But with egg prices so high, one way to get great eggs at a good price is to invest in raising your own chickens. That's very true, Eric. Check out Ideal Poultry at idealpoultry.com if you want to place an order for some backyard chickens, ducks, or any other poultry, like pheasants or chuckers. I mean, come on, turkeys. They breed the best birds in the U.S. and are a lovely Christian, family-owned and operated business. That's right. Visit Ideal Poultry at idealpoultry.com for all your backyard poultry needs. Speaking of jokes in our culture, Brian, one of the things we'll move on to point number three is men are supposed to be hard-nosed providers and violent protectors. This is from Genesis 2.15, to work and to keep. So cultivation is one of man's jobs, both of things like vocation, his people, but also protection. Keeping is a defensive warrior-type posture. There's many places in Scripture where we could defend violence. And I say it's a joke in our culture because— We can't even get this right. So I have a lot of pushback on my podcast, I know, because people are like, wait a minute, are you saying that men should be the providers in their household? I mean, we literally in the church, we can't agree on that. And it seems like one of the most basic things. Dan, I know you've thought a lot about through counseling and with men 
Um, you've had a lot of these conversations where it's like, get off your couch, go get a job, bring your wife home. Why is this so central, though? To Like, think about some of the, the men that we've counseled. If you can get the guy to repent and do that, their family is on a totally different trajectory. Yeah, for, I mean, generationally, they're on a different tra- right. trajectory. Yeah, I, you know, up, right up there with pornography as far as shame goes, this is this is one of those things where a man is not providing for his family. I mean— To the core of his identity. Yeah, to, to the core of what it means to be a man. If you're not providing for your family, it is very shameful. And you know this. I mean, instinctively, we all know this because when we were getting out of high school— and if you didn't know, like, what college you're going to go to or what you were going to do for a career, maybe this is just me. I said universally. People would ask, like, oh, so what are you going to do after high school? And you're like, boy, I better have an answer. I better have a good answer or else it's kind of shameful because to say, like, oh, I don't know. Um, maybe I'll live at home for a while is like, oh, shame. I'm really Wait, hoping even- to beat the next Call of Duty. Yeah, well, I don't yeah, know if that was that's that not how it works, video. but level up, yeah, whatever. But when you were in high school, were there, a clan. were there video games when you were in high school, Dan? I don't think I'll be talking to him <laughs> the rest of the podcast. <laughs> we had Duck yeah. Hunt. <laughs> not <laughs> in hard. high school. I played Duck Hunt in when high I was school. Like they in... didn't even have Duck Hunt yet when Dan was in high school. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly okay, what, that's what I thought. Okay. When I was in high school, we were playing Sega Genesis, Joe Montana football. I mean, there was no there was no iPhone when I was in high school. Actually, Sega Genesis, Sonic the Hedgehog. Banger. The casino one, dude, that Amazing. was so, well, I, so, so chef's so, kiss. What, what I was going to say to Dan's point about provision, because I think this is really important. Even the way that men size each other up in culture, it's a very natural, normal question. The first thing I ask a guy, you know, do you have kids? What, you know, obviously what's your name? But like the next first thing that I ask them is what do you do? Yeah. yeah. And that that's not crazy that we should ask that question because men are very tied to their vocations. They should be. That's natural. But, Dan, we have a lot of situations uh, in the culture today where uh, – I think I mentioned this before, but the uh, the term has come up, a fami. A fami? I had to look this up. What's it's called a, a, a father mommy. Okay. No. I want to get off this planet. <laughs> I want off. Yeah, father mommy is somebody – it's like a dad who stays home while the mom works. Yeah, let's get – I want off. Let's, and go, let's go. There's a lot of people in this boat – so again, getting households in order, Brian, I'm curious in counseling, like what, what do you say to people who are in that situation? Well, no, you know, one of the things I think is important to say first in this conversation, and, and, and we do end up saying quite a bit in counseling, is it's hard. Yeah. What we're talking about is hard, and it's hard because you're no longer simply competing against a cursed earth. You're competing against a cursed system where the, the, the sin is systemic in the system. So you're not just working the ground with the t- sweat of your brow with thorns and thistles. You're also battling the thorns and thistles of an idolatrous statist you know, behemoth that has appointed itself competitor, chief competitor with fathers for that role. And so you know, when a man goes out now and he says, I'm going to work hard, I'm going to build a business, I'm going to you know, do really well at my vocation. I'm going to, my wife's coming home. She's going to, you know, be there with the children. We're going to build a house, give a legacy, give an inheritance. At every step, the government or some downstream implication of governmental action is going to make that feel Sisyphean, like the guy who, Sisyphus, who had to roll the the boulder up the hill and then they knocked it down and then like do it again. You know, because I'm talking to my dad this last week about inheritance. 
he's worked hard, wise, you know, wise, wise guy. You know, he, he saved his money, good investments, whatever. And he is, he's talking about his grandchildren and wanting to provide, you know, see my mom through to her 90s or however old, like she's statistically going to live and he's an engineer. So he has a st- like an actuarial projection, I'm pretty sure, on a spreadsheet somewhere. And he's describing the com- competition for inheritance that the government is going to put up. And he's like, look, if I do it this way, I'll end up paying a 40 to 50% tax rate on all of this inheritance functionally. And it's like, so I think the first thing we have to say is, yeah, it's hard, guys. Yeah. Like, don't take us as saying, it's just so easy, you idiot, you loser, you worm. If you don't have 50K in the bank, if you don't have a house paid off, if you're not, then you're an idiot. It's like, if you have those things, it almost certainly right now means that you had a really good dad. I mean, or some some other great gift of the Lord. Right. So that's, I mean, I think you that's have huge. to start that right, start there right now so yeah. you don't crush men and make them feel stupid that they had, maybe they don't even know the reason why it's so hard. But I think putting words to that's really important. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Uh, it's tied to another thing on the provision front. And this is comes from, I, I was reading this uh, about Jewish culture, so Old Testament Jewish culture, uh, which would have been based in the Old Testament scriptures, obviously. But what's really interesting is they saw it as a responsibility that fathers also had to pass on a vocation or a trade to their sons. So this isn't just when we say that men should be providers— there's many different ways in which you have to provide spiritually. But for this episode, I want to highlight that because I think it's tied to generational work. We're talking about building new Christendom. And, Dan, we have to win our sons' hearts and our daughters' hearts so that they are going to, among other works, they're going to carry on this work of building new Christendom. So I wonder if you would just speak to that a little bit and why it's important that we give vocations, both for new Christendom but also, like, we have to help our sons find jobs and figure out what they're going to do with their lives. Yeah, yeah. I think we'll get into some of this as well with the patriarchal vision that we'll talk about next. But it's vital for fathers to pass on a vision to their sons and um, uh, to aspire to be a, a sort of man, the sort of man that you are. That's like the goal of a good father is, hey, be like me, son, uh, and passing that on. And also, like um, um, Brian said in the last episode, for daughters to look to the father and say, that's the kind of man that I want to marry. And so part of that is vocation. I mean, actually, if you if you back up a little bit, um, one of the things that I've talked about in the past is passing on an inheritance we just talked about of wealth, but also of culture, meaning like, what do you actually do? What do you actually do? Everything from physical strength that we talked about uh, and taking care of your body, the way that you eat, the way that you reason, also the way that you work, which means there are going to be certain competencies. If you're an engineer, obviously that's going to be somewhat difficult to pass on to your son, you know, or if you're a medical doctor, that's going to be somewhat difficult to pass on to your son. But there are all sorts of competencies that you can pass on that are adjacent to that. I mean, you don't have to teach them the stress point of, I don't know, like extruded plastics in order for them to to understand engineering principles. Like engineers have a very unique skill set and a very unique way of of um, of thinking. Yeah, like well, my, my dad passed on the proverb, it's a family saying, very deep wisdom. Shock and vibration are the enemies of mechanical systems. So 
That's good. It's, I can't tell you how many times it's been applicable in my life. But but part of vocation is like you had said, Eric. It's part of your identity. It is saying in a way, what are you for? What are you for? It's where you're going to spend like eighty percent of your time during the week, like waking hours. Yeah, right. And, so a big part of it might be, you know, Brian. We talked about this, but finding the grain in your son and then yeah. just helping them figure it out. I guess just for for the sake of this point, it's just that fathers, you have a responsibility. That you don't say to your sons, hey, when you're 18, go figure it out. I hope you find something to do. Mm-hmm. Maybe they end up going to college. They get a ton of debt, and it wasn't a good idea for them. Or maybe, you know, at the age of 15, I know Headmaster Love, like with my boys, we're already talking about, like, what are some businesses we could start? What are some things we could get them engaged in? Let's see what they're good at. Let's let's help them chart a course forward. Again, tying this to this is how one way fathers provide for their sons. And then I would say, too, on the provision for daughters, don't let your daughter be 18 and then say, sayonara, good luck, hope you find a husband. The provision a father should make is you should help her figure that out. Agree, disagree, Brian? Yeah, absolutely, because otherwise you're going to, like, the woman was hardwired to desire a masculine covering masculine protection, masculine leadership, which is why even, um, (laughs) you know, like even the feminist systems of the world, you'll often find at the top pulling the strings, there are still some old white men. You know, you'll find basically wherever you have unattached females going out in culture with no fatherly covering or husbandly covering, they will often become the victim of a false father figure, of of not a benevolent father figure, but a destructive father figure or of the kinds of ex- male exploiters that father figures are supposed to be protecting their daughter from. Mm. Like, you know, young men in college who are really not interested in anything about your daughter other than the fact that she is a woman he can sleep with. So when you're, when you're considering raising your daughters into adulthood, you need, to be, you need to make sure that you're protecting them, giving them – I think this really links us into the next patriarchal vision section – but that you're you're providing that covering for them, that you are helping them uh, think clearly, that you're helping them not easily find themselves in situations where it's really easy to be taken advantage of. Now, your daughters can sin, bad things can happen, understand that. But as a father, part of being a violent protector is before you ever need to step in and stab a homie, or protect, protect someone, you know, <laughs> you know, like before you need to get in there and be like, you leave my daughter alone. Are you thinking about the situations you're putting your daughter into? What are the probabilities? What are the likelihoods kind of environment? Don't send her off to some random college and go, yeah, go live in the dorm and I'll call you once a month. Like, no, that's not going to work. Not going to work. I mean, even if it does, it will be a statistical anomaly. Yeah. Yeah, and as you said, Brian, it's very closely connected to patriarchal vision. Uh, So Dan and I were talking about this before we got on air, and it really goes back to Genesis, right? With the patriarchs in the book of Genesis, you think about really Abraham. God gave him a vision, go out to this place, establish a people, and so it becomes this pattern for what dominion looks like in the real world. So there's dominion, there's dynasty, there's a kingdom, there's a people— And then you see across the generations how they're passing this vision on. So, Dan, I want to ask you, 
Kind of your thoughts on this patriarchal vision, helping men establish a mission. Why is this so important as a role for fathers? Man, that question is a big one. Yes. Yeah. So if you look out, huge. The so patriarchal vision as it as it pertains to fathers having a mission and all that. Uh, really, when you look at all of the things that we've talked about, men being protectors, men being providers, men thinking generationally, it all has one thing that's kind of in common, and that and it seems really obvious. But the the father should be the head of his household, and what I mean about that is like you should be leading from the front, and if you look at the the narratives from a lot of the patriarchs in the scriptures, this is true. When they're succeeding, they're leading from the front. And when they're failing, they're leading from the back. Even with uh, King David, when he stayed home at the times when kings would go to war, he stayed home. He was leading from the back. That was a disaster. Um, and so one of the, I think one of the things that we need to consider is that men should lead from the front. And ultimately, we look at God the Father as the ultimate father figure, right? And he leads from the front. Deuteronomy 31, 8 says, And the Lord, he is the one who goes before you. Mm. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. And so if we look to God the Father as the ultimate father figure, which he is, he is going before you so that you shouldn't be afraid, meaning you'll be protected, you'll be provided for. Do not fear. Do not be dismayed. He will not leave you or forsake you. He goes in the front. And even Jesus and John says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And so even Jesus is going in front of us. Uh, the, the whole narrative of the gospel is Jesus fulfilling the law where we could not. He went before us. He was the better he was the better father than Adam as a re representative. If Adam is our father, uh, Jesus was a better father in that way is that he went before us. He, he, is our, he is our head. He protects us. He provides for us. Yeah, so much of it, Dan, it seems like as a father, just thinking in Latin even, you know, father is potter, and then family, nations, countries end up being some variant of patria. So even the connection that yeah. the the fathers are the one driving the ship, you think about the father in something like the book of Exodus, he knows where he's going. He's going to lead the people there. He's going to protect. He's going to provide. He's going to be in front of them. In fact, he says to one point uh, after the golden calf incident, Moses, you lead the people, but I'm not coming. And Moses says, if you're not coming with us, we're not going. There's just, we won't do it. And the Lord ends up coming. Um, he ends up leading his people it makes me think at a very practical level, what would it look like for fathers to be out front? Certainly, Brian, one of the things would be it means you don't let your wife set the tone, vision, direction of the family. Yeah. She's helping you. I'll let, I'll let Brian answer this. But, yeah, one of the things you can't do is, is be nagged into leading. <laughs> yeah, right? that, that won't go well because you're actually from the beginning, you cut your own legs out from under you. If you don't, if you don't step in and – as a father, establish a patriarchal, just a fatherly vision for the, your genesis, for your legacy, for where you're going, what your children are looking towards, what kind of legacy you're trying to leave, then it's not that you won't have any. It's that something else will have to step in and fill the vacuum, whether that's pop culture, entertainment, public schooling, whatever it is. And if you make your wife do that, if she's the one who has to step in, 
And she's the one who's like leading the charge on, hey, let's do family worship. Hey, let's do all these things. You, you know, what about education? Have you thought about this? Are you considering any kind of philosophy of education for our children? Or, you know, if at every step your wife is the one taking the first step towards having some kind of vision, then that means that you're lead, like Dan said, you're leading from behind. You're not, you're not getting ahead. You're not the one who's saying, hey, read this book, read these books, check this out. Um, I think that this is where we need to go with the education of our children. Then you're, you're essentially saying the curse is actually good. <laughs> Her desire is to rule over him. It's part of the curse is that she, the, the woman would not be satisfied with being a, a helpmeet to, to her husband, a suitable helper, but would instead want to rule over him. And you're saying, yeah, that's great. Yeah, you can do that. Cool. I'm fine with that. And it, it, it doesn't mean, I think there's a ditch here, though. Patriarchal vision doesn't mean that you ham-fistedly ignore the counsel and wisdom of your most powerful deputy, which should be your wife. Your wife is essentially your most powerful deputy under your charge as you rule the house to fulfill the vision for the house. Is that what you call Lexi? Deputy? I call her my most powerful deputy. <laughs> my deputy. So dorky. Uh, yeah, she loves it. No, I actually don't. But we've <laughs> talked about this on Bright Hearth, where you often get an overcorrection in men who are um, aspiring patriarchs, getting correction from the feminist background of the culture. And then they begin to act like their wife should have no input in the home. And they shouldn't listen to their wife. It should only be them, their thoughts. And they failed if their wife comes along and says, hey, have you considered this for education? Well, no. That, like One of the things that I will tell Lexi is I want you to come up with a plan for this aspect of our home life. I want you to come up with a, with a plan for this. Um, like we've dealt with some dyslexia kind of issues in one of our children. So it's, it's, I didn't say I'm now going to figure out all of this. I said, Lexi, I think you're, you're in a good position to you're interested in this stuff. Can you go and do some research for us and present some options? And then she did. And then I went and looked at those options and we developed a plan together and we're executing it. But that wasn't a failure. That was a success. Right, because the important things are that you're laying a foundation of values and a mm-hmm. vision, like so that she knows exactly like yeah. well, public school is not an option. Yeah. Like so I'm not even gonna explore that. That that's that goes against the grain of Brian's patriarchal vision for our family. And and it says in I think it's Proverbs thirty one that this ideal woman, her husband's heart trusts in her. So if you are a good man, you marry a good woman and you're doing a good job of raising and leading your household, one of the things that should be true is that you are married to a wise, competent woman who you can trust to respectfully and helpfully um, wield wifely and motherly authority in the home, which is a real office with real authority. And so you know, a husband with patriarchal vision doesn't mean a man who is domineering and beyond criticism or beyond help or beyond counsel, and he just issues decrees from on high, remember what a good patriarch is aiming to do in the first place, which is to actually win the heart of the people that he's leading, his children, his wife, as a pastor, the flock. If you don't have their heart, you're just going to rule by force, by force of authority. Yeah, a lot of times they end up just being tyrannical. Um, It's tied to the next point we have on here that fathers are to build and keep generational connectedness. 
We've heard Doug Wilson and other people talk about this quite a bit. Um, but this idea that you're not a single point in history, you're connected to your fathers yeah. before you and to your sons after you. So really this idea that fathers in Scripture have an important role in holding the generations together. And we see this in scriptural expressions like when people died, they were gathered to their people or gathered to their fathers. And Brian, it reminds me of one of my favorite scenes. It's a tearjerker. It impacts you as manual. We were talking about before mm-hmm. the Chad meme. There's the two ladies and they're like, do men even cry? And then you come to this scene of Theoden's death <laughs> yeah. on the Pelennor fields. And he says, my body is broken. I go to my fathers and even in their mighty company, I shall not now be ashamed. Why? First of all, why is that scene so powerful, particularly to men? Chad meme on the right with ashes on his face. He's going to cry over this one. (laughs) Why is it so important? Well, because I, I think there are multiple directions of why. One of them is that every man longs to have forefathers like that. And not all of us do. You know, not all of not all of us can look back in our history and say, "Yeah, I'm descended from this mighty man. I'm descended from this great man." Now, the good news is that this is one of the points of like Hebrews 11, is that we all are Abraham is our father. We're sons of Abraham by faith. We're true sons of Abraham. So, Gideon is my forefather. Abraham is my forefather. David is my forefather. I can look to them. So every man longs for that, but then also every man. Every man just wants to have, there's a deep desire to have one epic parting line before he dies. I think we can all agree. I mean, with your last <laughs> Is breath. Is that the thing? Use your last yeah. breath. Every man wants like, to say, like, I go to the halls of my fathers. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, come on. Have shame. In whose mighty company yeah. I shall now not be ashamed. Yeah. I mean, that's for sure part of it. Yeah. One of the interesting things about uh, that, uh, the return of the king, is that you have. Really, you have three kings that are being contrasted, mm. and two of them, uh, Denethor and Theoden, I think are really interesting in their contrast uh, at the last battle, at this big battle at, in Gondor. You have Theoden, who was under the influence of darkness, you know, of evil, and he repents. And you see him <clears throat> at the front leading his men with the battle cry, blowing the horn to mm. death. And the red Dad. dawn, yeah. you know, and he's charging and he he uh, dies gloriously. And then you have Denethor, who is not the vision of the patriarchal, you know. <laughs> when he jumps vision, off, so it's, at least in the movie, he jumps off the tower cliff wall. And what does Gandalf say? He's like, thus ends the reign of Denethor. Yeah, thus yeah. ends <laughs> son of Ectelion. Yeah, so, and he leads from the back, even at one point in the book where he's, talking to Pippin, uh, uh, Pippin mm-hmm. says like, oh, the Dark Lord's coming? You know, he like forgets his place is what the book says. The Dark Lord is coming? And Denethor says, no, he won't come until the end because he leads, you know, he sends others to 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 fight for him, just as any wise Lord would, just as I do. And so you see this glimpse of Denethor as like this kind of bad guy that leads from the yeah. back. And then in the end, he proves that he dies in shame versus Theoden, who's who repented, who was, uh, by all appearances, somewhat evil or influenced by evil. He repents, and he ends up winning glory uh, in his death. Mm. And so it's a really interesting contrast um, between the tyrant, you know, the one that just leads by force and by fear and doesn't win the hearts of his people, versus Theoden, where he's out front. He It says he 
blew the horn and it broke apart. Yeah, like it splintered. broke the horn. It splintered. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and he's out, out front leading the charge. Right. And he won the hearts of his people. And who has more glory in the end? And so part of it is knowing where you are in the story. Well, even uh, Tolkien almost certainly got Theoden's speech from an old Norse poem. Really? That is, I think it's almost 2,000 years old. So he's writing in the 20th century, but then Tolkien is, he's the reason that those books are so deeply moving is because Tolkien taps into these universal human longings that take us all the way back to our father, Adam, that God, these are like, God has set eternity in the hearts of men. The original of, myths. Yeah. So he's the old Norse. I mean, they're pagans, but even in their heart, God had set eternity where they longed to be able to say, the man wanted to say, like, I am reaching back to the example of my forefathers. I'm poor. My shield shall be splintered today. My shield will be broken. Even if I pour my blood out to protect my people today so that, my legacy, my sons can continue, our, our, our line can continue, and they can look back on me someday, maybe 10 generations from now. And that's a God-designed ambition that men ought to have. It, it, this is one of the reasons I think it's so depressing when you look at things like declining testosterone levels and men just giving way to like a soft sort of uh, passivity where they're like, Eh, I don't care what happens. That that tells you right there that there's a deep vitality in the male spirit that's being murdered by something in our cultural water today. Right. Well, I mean, I was talking about how shameful it is to not provide for your family or to protect mm -hmm. them. I mean, this is one of the reasons. Yeah. Is that um, even even you know we had talked about masculine virility and strength and Socrates who you would think like, oh, he's a philosopher. This guy is probably like a weenie, okay? This is what he said. It is a disgrace to grow old through sheer carelessness before seeing what manner of man you may become by developing your bodily strength and beauty to their highest limit. But you cannot see that if you are careless, for it will not come of its own accord. He's just talking about mere strength, you yeah. know, but, but we're talking about something even greater, and yep. that's the what we talk about in the patriarchal vision is winning glory for generations. And you're not going to get that through carelessness. Yes. You're not going to get that through abdicating your responsibility and letting your wife nag you into leading your family. You're not going to get that by becoming whatever that word that you said was invented by being the the daddy mommy. Fami. You know, the Fami. Fami. You're not <sighs> going to do that. And your children and your grandchildren, and even if they're, they don't exist yet, your great, 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 great grandchildren need you and want you to go out before them to lead for, from the front and to set a, a glorious patriarchal vision that can be inherited for generations. Yeah. And I think the other point, we've kind of been talking about this throughout the episode, but on this point, especially with Theoden. It really is tied to honor culture, right? That you you do you do not want to dishonor your fathers and what they've done, um, and so I think one of the things that we can do, even if you didn't have those fathers directly, the thing is that men need stories like this. They need stories of Alfred the Great. They need stories of men that will inspire them, and and I think a big part of that is, it, it's not just we we aren't like syllogisms, you know, men aren't syllogisms right. where you input this theological data. And you get this result. 
men's again Theoden. He won his men's hearts, and so they fought and they fought for you know for glory, and uh, they honored themselves. So, gentlemen, we'll move on as we uh, as we close with a few points. Number six on here: fathers are supposed to lead in the education of their children. Ephesians five and six. Brian, why is this so important? It's something we've emphasized at St. Brennan's. It's something that I think as men, we all share this passion in the midst of our status culture that, no, we're going to take a leading role in educating our sons. We've talked about it before, but just why is this such an important role for the father? Well, I mean, God gives it directly to the father, which doesn't mean in Ephesians 5, or uh, yeah, Ephesians 6, I'm sorry, Ephesians 6, 4. So God gives this role directly to the father. That doesn't mean the father cannot oversee and, again, deploy his troops, deploy his wife to homeschool, deploy teachers to help in mm-hmm. church schools and things like that. But the father has the primal responsibility. He's the first moving author- uh, uh, responsibility. He's where the buck stops with the children. So obviously if God says that you are, t- if he gives you a duty, it will be good for you to do that duty, and it will be bad for you if you don't, if you neglect or shirk that duty. Even if you don't understand why, you have to understand that about the nature of reality. This is why in counseling, one of the first questions we often talk through in marriage counseling, for example, is, okay, um, you're having trouble in the marriage. Okay, turn to the wife. What, what, is the, what does God say the duty of a wife is? Mm-hmm. Let's just talk about what God says. You must do this. Right. Let's start there. Husband, what does it say? So that's that's the foundation you build on, and then you start to see all the way down the line, what happens when fathers neglect this duty and give it over, uh, give way to other father figures who are often not benevolent, and it's bad. You you can't give an intergenerationally connected patriarchal vision for your family and give up education, because that's where your children are going to learn their schema in many ways for the reality of the world, for what the world is, for what they're for, for what is true, good, and beautiful, what virtue looks like. I mean, they're going to be shaped by their teachers to look like their teachers and their peers to look like their peers. So a husband, a father who doesn't oversee the education of his children in imparting wisdom to his children and making sure that they understand what the world is like, uh, he's obviously neglecting his duty, and he's going to reap uh, really, really devastating fruit down the line. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Dan, one of the other things is you think about Solomon in proverbial wisdom. I think fundamentally that's that's where Jordan Peterson, his 12 rules for life, beyond order, all that stuff. I think it's resonated because it's it's, you know, more or less a type of proverbial wisdom. And what I mean is it's practical advice on finance, sex, business, women, etc. When we think about education, we're not just talking about you know, the books you need to read or the Latin you need to read or what we're doing at St. Brennan's even. But even wrapped into St. Brennan's and fatherhood is like practical advice for everyday life. A lot of the stuff that we've talked about that's that's so useful for young men is like how to get the girl. I mean, that that maybe that seems like it should be obvious, but in our culture, it's not. So I guess talk just a little bit about that side of education, practical wisdom. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I like that. That's interesting. Yeah, because the primary focus, this, this almost like a secondary tier, uh, is like philosophy, theology, you know, the higher sciences and things like that. But one of the one of the cores as a father in educating your children are just the basics of how to live life mm-hmm. every day. And you can see that from our episode on Daddy YouTube where we discussed like here's how you just 
here's how you tie a tie. I mean, actually, it makes me really, really sad when I think about that. All of the things that a father should do uh, as far as teaching sons to just, this is how you be a man, step one. Even this is how you start a fire. This is how you uh, are supposed to drink and not drink a beer. Like this is how, yeah, all of those basic things are so important for for fathers to win the hearts of their sons. Mm-hmm. I think more so um, you can win the heart of your sons by saying, here's how you go fishing. Here's how you tie on a hook. This is how you bait it. This is where you're going to find fish. This is the time of year you should fish. This is how you clean a fish. You're going to win his heart much easier than if you sit down with just merely some sort of uh, systematic theology and just try to pound it into his head. It's much easier to win the hearts of your children to see beauty when you show them some of the basics and then you say, this is going to challenge you. Now we're gonna, I'm going to talk to you about some systematics. You must lay the groundwork first. And it's so important just for, to be a functioning human, but also to win the hearts of your children. Yeah, I think that's really important. Uh, Brian, any thoughts on that, uh, wrapping up education for children? No, I would just point people back to one of the episodes that we did on covenant succession as well. We yeah. really unpacked this topic at length in that episode in season one. And uh, I think there's a lot of meat there that if anybody's looking for resources, they can get a good start in uh, where to go deeper, I think, there. Yeah, and also I would recommend the captain's log, um, mm-hmm. which I know people can find. We can provide links for that as well. Gentlemen, concluding, I think, is a good point. Number seven, uh, a good area to wrap things up today. Fathers are God's instrument for creating order in a world of chaos. So especially, again, Jordan Peterson, you know, his whole dynamic is this Jungian order in the midst of chaos. But really, God gives us a very simple plan for that. In Titus 1.5, Paul says this, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished. And so you might ask yourself, okay, he told him, he gave him instructions to create order in the midst of chaos. How? How would a guy create order in the midst of chaos? And then he says, the way that you do this is you appoint elders in every town. And then he lists the qualifications of fatherhood. So I I found that really interesting that our world is chaos, but like the father, we image the father when we start using our words and our actions to bring order to that chaos and light into the darkness. So it's really interesting uh, way to think about kind of concluding the roles of father. Uh, Dan, I just want to ask you uh, your final thoughts on this. You think about the chaos in the world today. It can be overwhelming. People can get blackpilled. What do you think as a father when you're looking at your sons? What do you think the way that you, the best way to create order in the world through them is? How do you impart that that mission? Yeah, well, I think it, first of all is to embrace the job. That's the first thing. Mm-hmm. Because it was given to our father, Adam. Hey, go into all of the wilds and make this a garden. Mm-hmm. Create order where there's disorder. That's, that's, that's just masculinity 101, whether you have children yet or not, or your children are grown, that, that job, that responsibility doesn't go away. And the second thing, uh, as far as fathers, especially with children at home, the best way that you can do that is by creating wise, godly, masculine men from your boys um, that are disciplined well, driving the foolishness from them, teaching them to be wise, and then doing the same for your daughters, 
creating godly, feminine, beautiful, godly women uh, that will be fruitful and that can spot the foolish man from a mile away and have nothing to do with him. And then going on and doing the same for your grandkids and your great grandkids, you know, as your lineage goes on. I mean, that's just really high, you know, fly over 30,000 feet. That's, that's really the job. Yeah, I love it. Brian, closing thoughts as we conclude on order and chaos and fatherhood. Yeah, I had a really original thought on that. And I think it's that if you want to fix the world, you should start by making your bed. I think that's a really important <laughs> that's point. Good. You should do a book. It's been really missed in a lot of our cultural conversation. But in all seriousness, though, when you're thinking about these points, it's very, very important that you boil them down relentlessly in your own life to what what are my action items today, tomorrow, this week, this month for myself. It's so easy to do this masturbatory kind of learning where you just, oh, wow, that's cool. That's an interesting thought. This was a good book, good podcast, blah. Chew your food. Like, think about this. Take What areas of chaos exist in my world? You know, where, because all of us have them, pockets of chaos in our lives where things are out of order and we, imaging God, are to go in and bring order, bring take dominion. You know, be a wise steward to impart, uh, impart systems, and you know, bring in. And I'm not talking about flattening everything. Nobody's allowed to have fun in my house. No laughing. Everything has to be in ordnung. It has to be like perfectly ordered. But you have to start there. You, you. It really is true that you shouldn't be waxing poetic on Facebook about changing the world when your household is a wreck. And so many men substitute real action for thinking and talking and Facebooking and Twittering and podcasting and what whatnot. So with, with all of these, if I could summarize for us briefly here at the end of the episode, yeah. as we're talking about what are fathers for, we told you to, number one, rule your household well. Think that through. Where are you not ruling well? We've told you that you need to be sexually masculine. Are you effeminate and porn addicted? Are you being led away by the woman that you've been warned against in Proverbs? Don't go down her doorway. Number three, a hard-nosed provider and violent protector. Are you strong? Are you working hard? Are you thinking creatively? Are you, you know, projecting forward a vision to provide legacy and inheritance for your children's children? Patriarchal vision. How are you doing there? Building and keeping a generational connectedness. Are you thinking about your children, your grandchildren? Are you thinking about how now you can be setting up your life to connect those generations? Are you honoring your father and mother above you? Uh, education of children. Uh, even if you have young children, are you looking forward to that? Are you doing your reading now? Are you coming to convictions? Are you establishing a pattern? And then finally, in all that, number seven, if you do that, then you will find that you have become one of God's most powerful instruments for bringing order in a world of chaos and uh, just be relentlessly focused on actionable, practical doing, not just thinking. Awesome. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful synopsis, Brian. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you for joining me and uh, participating in this episode of the King's Hall. Of course, we always want to encourage people, support this show, the work that we're doing. We could not do without your support. So become a member on Patreon today. And again, that helps this work go forward. Finally, we want to just remind you, Festinalente, make haste slowly. The work of building new Christendom often seems mundane, but it is glorious in the long run, and we need to do that work slowly and steadily. So Festinalente, and we'll see you on the flip side. <laughs>